an entire inevitable genre of pornography fulfills our projective fantasies of eager white girls in love with massive black appendages. She will kneel before the camera, looking into it. She'll tell us, yeah, I want that big black cock. Where is it? And how long do I have to wait for it? If you had to, Pascal said to me, shaking his head, if you had to, you couldn't even run. And I had to admit that he was right. I was heavily pregnant and had already stopped crossing the street when the walk signal began blinking its warning. And what I wanted? To start wearing a shirt with large block prints across my belly. Black baby on board. But if I had to, I couldn't even run. And would I have to? A few months earlier, I would have said no, but the inauguration was weeks away and Make America Great Again armies were on the move. For the next several months, buses full of angry white people, led by known supremacists, would drive into our city and assemble two blocks from our apartment to wave and chant, desperately trying to incite violence against themselves, succeeding most consistently in shutting down our Saturday farmer's market which couldn't peddle persimmons and avocados in a haze of tear gas. I understand why you want to do it, Pascal said. And it's a good idea, but now is not the time. And I knew he was right. Because Black Baby on board meant something else. The real provocation we both feared unleashing. It wasn't the baby, per se, but how it got there. What we feared invoking was the most fraught American organ, the big black dick. Some months later, Pascal and I left the United States with our newborn baby. Welcome to Pan Parenting. I am your host, Liz Waz, a white American mother raising two biracial children in Rome, Italy. Ever since becoming a mother, I have become more and more aware of the influence of fear on my choices and thoughts, on the emotional ecosystem encircling my family's life. Pan Parenting is a year-long project to seek out, confront, dispel, and destroy the fears that threaten to damage our well-being. In a year of conversations with parents from across the globe, parents of all nations, I will find a better, more courageous, and fulfilling way to live. As a woman, a partner, an artist, a mother, abroad and at home, wherever the latter shall be. The idea for the shirt came as I was struggling to figure out how to respond to my baby's passing. My therapist didn't understand. When I first sat there in her office, my hands on my belly and told her that I was struggling with my baby's passing, she was shocked noticeably shaken for the first time in my presence. It took a few moments before we both realized her error. Wait, she finally said, interrupting me. You mean your baby is not dying? By the time I realized my baby was passing, it had been happening for weeks. I was halfway through my second trimester. My pregnancy had begun to assert itself in the world. I was pregnant enough that people began offering me their seats. Strangers would smile and begin conversation. How far along are you? Is it your first, boy or girl? I did not tire of answering these questions again and again. Five months, yes, we're going to be surprised. I would respond, always smiling, my hands rubbing the curve of my belly. 
In the moment I realized that my baby had been passing, I was walking down the Embarcadero in San Francisco with two white women I had just had dinner with after meeting at a workshop earlier that day. We had spent hours together, but it was only now that their questions shifted from my baby, they were all themselves mothers, to my work. And after listening to me describe a project investigating racial colorblindness as a covert instrument of white supremacy, one of the women asked me, Is your baby white? The question stopped me in my tracks. It shouldn't have, but there you go. Why we're often least equipped to tell our own stories. The unsettling realization that was washing over me as I continued walking straight and heard myself say in the distance, No, my baby is black. The realization was not that this woman had spent the meal the day assuming that my baby was, like me, white. The realization was that everyone had. For days, weeks, dozens, hundreds of passerby, everyone. I thought back to all of the warm smiles from strangers, the unprovoked murmurings of approval, the kindness. That had all been for someone else, someone who didn't exist. That had all been for an imaginary white baby, not for my child. There was no bias, no aggression, no ill will or discriminatory intent in this assumption. It would have been, in almost every other case, an accurate assumption. Nearly all pregnant white women in the United States are carrying white babies. Little more than 1% of them are pregnant with the children of black men. And so, for all of those strangers to have assumed any differently would have been bizarre. A strange projection not rooted in any statistical reality. No, I told my therapist. My baby is not dying. My baby is passing. People think my baby is white. And they would continue to, I knew, inevitably, naturally, with demographics and logic on their side, unless I found a way to challenge that assumption, to stop it in its tracks. Which is why I turned to my partner, the father of my unborn child, and told him of my plan to begin wearing a shirt with large block print across my belly. Black baby on board. Where is it and how long do I have to wait for it? The director, likely a white man, will orchestrate this piece of modern erotic cinema. A black man will enter the frame, excited for showtime. She offers a blowjob, but no, a vicious skull fucking which looks more like a gaffing than an act of love, will be impressed upon her mouth, throat, neck, and anal will incur, perhaps a double penetration, the gaping of what was once whole. The picture will fortify certain stereotypes. Black guys have huge penises. White women want to get stuck ruefully by the homeboys. Dark-skinned men secretly plot to carve out fair-skinned women behind the suspecting backs of white men and black women, and when they do, they will collapse the white women like lions pounce their prey. If I had to, I couldn't even run. So I agreed. I didn't wear the shirt. My baby continued to pass, but I didn't stop being angry about it, which my therapist thought was odd. She was so relieved to learn that passing had him in dying, and she couldn't seem to understand how I could be so distraught about the former. A pregnant black woman gets treated far worse than a pregnant white woman. Subway passengers less likely to rise for her. 
white women in line at the grocery store, less likely to smile and congratulate, instead craning their necks to see if she is paying with EBT, if she is buying healthy food, wondering if she already has a child or children more than she ought to. There is a certain measure of disdain directed at pregnant black women. Much of this is because of white America's hatred of black women, but some of it is because of white America's hatred of black children. Are you angry because you want that racial hostility to be directed at your child? My therapist was trying and failing to understand. Of course not. It wasn't that I wanted to receive that hostility. I tried to explain. I certainly didn't want my baby to. But there lingered a certain disgust that overcame me every time I replayed all of the warmth that had been bestowed upon my little passenger and began to wonder how much of it had been offered in error. It was some months after my baby was born that an important study was released, revealing that the disparity in maternal and infant death between black and white mothers was today worse than it had been in the mid-19th century before emancipation. This statistical reality, which many of racism's apologists wanted to attribute to class, everything, they insist, comes down to class. Held steady in spite of education and economics, it was an outsized risk no class ascension could skirt. Black women with college degrees are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women who never finished high school. Only once every other possible explanation was proven not, could, would, people listen to the study's author's ultimate finding. It was racism that was killing these mothers and babies. The deleterious effects of racial bias on their bodies, minds, and spirits, leaving them so overburdened that the immense demands of creating and ushering a new life were far too often too many. No one knew yet of this study's precise findings when I was pregnant, but many of us knew its essence without having to read a scientific report. I knew that being a pregnant white woman was not the same as being a pregnant black woman. Much of this is because of white America's hatred of black women. My black child, by virtue of being born to me, a white woman unmolested by the barbarity of American anti-blackness, was four times less likely to die in the first year of life. But some of it is because of white America's hatred of black children. My black child would face the crushing realities of American racism throughout life, but not yet. Why would I want it to be any different? Why would I not embrace this deferment, life's happy prologue? Why did I see my child's passing as a form of violence and not, somehow, the opposite? More than three years have passed since I decided not to wear the shirt, that now was not the time. And that baby, a girl, Pascal announced his voice full of wonder in the moment of her birth, that girl, so far, has not grown up in America. The country I had feared was undeservedly claiming her and simultaneously erasing her. And so, for this first in my year of conversations, 
I wanted to talk to another parent also raising a little biracial girl. Though, unlike me, doing so from the perspective not of white mother, but of black father. And, unlike me, doing so in America. So I called up writer, musician, and executive director of the Anglert Theater in Iowa City, Iowa, Andre Perry, whom you've already heard read from his remarkable new collection of essays, Some of Us Are Very Hungry Now. And we talked, both of us in pandemic lockdown, him in his home in Iowa, me in a closet in Rome. We talked about his book, about parenting in interracial families, he is father to a four-year-old daughter, and about the specificity of the American experience when it comes to one of the basic building blocks of America, Blackness. Hey, how's it going? How are you? It is an intense time, as you might imagine. So glad you're you're willing to do this. I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> cool. I read your book last week. Thank you. At this moment in this season of my life, I can't think of a more enthusiastic review than to tell someone that even a tag team of toddlers could not keep me from turning these pages. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to build our conversation in part around some passages from the book, which I really want listeners to read. Yeah, it's cool. I personally felt a lot of resonance as I was reading with questions that I've been asking myself about parenting and, and more particularly about the fact of raising biracial black children, which is something that both of us are doing. I also just wanted to, before we turn to any of the passages that I wanted to look at together, I also wanted to just point out that you do write in the book at one point that there is, quote, nothing worse than a room full of white people asking me to acknowledge my blackness. They're really just asking me to acknowledge their own expectations of my blackness. And so I wanted to, before we begin, acknowledge that, you know, while I'm not a room full of white people, I am one white person in a closet <laughs> with a microphone. <laughs> and I had just asked you to join me in this conversation about identity and fatherhood and parenting and belonging that is explicitly going to be about the ways in which your blackness is a part of all of that. And so I want to thank you <laughs> for agreeing to do that. And thank you for your willingness to share this. I, I appreciate your generosity. Thank you. I, I appreciate the project. So honored to be a part of it. I was black, but during my San Francisco years, I didn't live in Bayview. My privilege, class, and education offered me passage to live among various stratifications of the white world. 21st century passing. I moved first to the hate, then Dolores Park, and finally the mission. Despite my artistic leanings, I maintained a steady job and I had gone to the right schools. San Francisco was always comfortable with its pre-approved Negroes, those who knew enough about the rules of the white system to not only navigate it, but to try carefully enough to not disrupt it. The existence of some pre-approved Negroes justified being truly diverse in the minds of the liberal entitled white people who inhabited it. A dear friend of mine pulled me aside after I announced my plans to leave San Francisco for Iowa City. Be careful, they said. They wanted to protect me from the engulfing whiteness of Iowa, a shroud that would surely overwhelm me. He told me a story about a black friend who had left California to take a professorship at the University of Iowa. 
The cultural solitude and discrimination had traumatized their friend, eventually leading to a departure from Iowa City. My friend implored me to make sure I knew what I was getting into before I left. In their heart, they believed they were only looking out for me. They couldn't imagine me being comfortable outside of San Francisco's protective borders. I appreciated the warning, but I'm always left to wonder why white people don't understand that we are under emotional assault almost everywhere we go. The question our defense systems ask is not always how much whiteness surrounds us, but more often what kinds of whiteness surround us. To rephrase an earlier inquiry, what's worse, the enthusiastic, purposeful racist, or the one who thinks they are not even capable of being racist? The one who can never imagine stepping on your sensitive colored toes and is indeed offended when you have suggested that they have done so. Thank you. I lived there for about 10 years before moving here to Italy. And it was a constant struggle being there in an interracial relationship for all those years. And this persistent inability to see themselves as part of this larger system of oppression that was very exhausting. The difference that I feel is that the racism that exists here, it doesn't have the same violent underpinnings that American racism has. And there isn't the same violence at the heart of it. Violence against Black bodies is not the foundation of this country and this culture. The reaction from people in the community around me to Trump's inauguration was one of such profound disbelief. And I remember being in in different rooms with people, adults, people who've lived for a long time in this country, who said that they just had no idea that the country was so racist. And I was really horrified. Not only did they think that they were above it, but they also they also minimized what was out there, even as they were setting themselves apart. Every time I've explained to anyone here in Italy that part of my reason for being here is because it is a respite from the racism of America. And then the next question they ask is, where were you living in America? And then when I tell them that I was in the Bay Area, every single person, every single person I've spoken to has had the exact same reaction. And these are Americans, but these are also Italians, Germans, Brits, Spaniards. Every single person has said, but San Francisco, I didn't think there was racism there. The the Bay Area has so effectively sold this narrative that it's written of itself, that that was the disbelief that I encountered from people who had never been there. Well, I, I should say that I, I do love the Bay Area. I do love San Francisco having lived there. And I feel a lot of things about living in Iowa and I feel a lot of California. And I still feel a lot of things about Washington, D.C., where I grew up. But what I'm trying to do, I think, in the book and by extension just in my life in general, is to embrace the complexity of the environments that we live in and that we're moving through. As I grew up, and maybe as a lot of us grew up, we would like to place society into binaries. And in terms of elections, you know, it's blue and red, or it's liberal and conservative. 
And we're really much more complex than that and not always doing the work to understand that we can be both humanists and anti-humanist within the same body or within the same mind or within the, the many diverse actions we might take take out upon the world. And so I really wanted to get at that in this book. It, it, it's hard to talk about this stuff because they're just feelings you have, whether you're at Obama's inauguration or Trump's inauguration with a bunch of folks in the city, wherever you live. You know, you might have these moments where you're just knocked out when someone says, I can't believe that our countries are racist. And you have a very visceral reaction, but to like explain in words why that is such like a like disorienting comedy here takes a lot. So I really capture that. And I actually tell people a lot, you know, one of the great things I think ever happened to me was moving to Iowa because I grew up on the East Coast and then, you know, spent time in the West Coast. And I definitely carried that arrogance of being just a East Coaster and then a West Coaster and not giving much credence to the depth of thought and just like the diversity of Americans that exist. So there are challenging parts about Iowa. But I mean, when I say Iowa, I mostly mean Iowa City, right? Which is so different than sometimes Dubuque or Des Moines, which is way different than Northwest Iowa or South. Even within this often cast about and not considered place in the, in the American story, so many different parts. You, we have to, I, I don't want to put on anyone else. I, I guess I have to do better on just understanding the real depth through which we've all been created and uh, are now existing on this land and not settle for the easy binary. I think I was trying to get at that in, in this book. That complexity is what's most interesting here in, in all of these essays. I'm wondering if there are any ways in which not being subject to the white gaze as much as you normally are, if that has had any impact on how you feel in the dynamic of your family. We love just being around our family. It's awesome. Despite the, the situation that's going on globally, it is a great opportunity to spend time with your partner and your kids, right? So in terms of like being, you know, because we're, everything's quieter right now and not being exposed as much to the, to the community around me and some of the maybe less awesome parts of that, you know, around race or, or class. I, I, I haven't thought about it, but I, w- I will say this. I think personally, um, just having spent enough time in Iowa city, you're not immune from anything, but I, I think I've, subconsciously and maybe consciously now have tried to like carve out like my little nook in our house with our family. I've got my route that I walk to work. I've got my people that I work with who are all awesome. And so I've created this little miniature world where it's not a negation or not pretending that things aren't outside of that bubble, but it's like the bubble that is there and can, and can keep me steady as I move on a day-to-day basis so that I don't feel like I'm, facing emotional strife with the people I interact with on a, on a daily basis. And I'll say it more, in a more brief phrases, which is, I think I've created my world in order to protect myself um, unless I have to go out and go on a trip and kind of be naked in the world again. Yeah. I'm really happy that you've been able to do that. Thank you. I was also hoping you could read something that I thought was really powerful and, and important in some kinds of love are better than others. Yes, I found it. Quickly, somehow. (laughs) Dark-skinned men secretly plot to carve out fair-skinned women behind the suspecting backs of white men and black women. And when they do, they will collapse the white women 
like lions pounce their prey. The pornographer as artist tells us the scenes are beautiful. They arouse everyone in the set and all of us at home in dark American bedrooms, our fiber optic cables sweating under the weight of the stream. The pornographer as businessman remarks that he shoots the film because people will pay for them. After all, he's not just in this for the art. He must manufacture the products that people want to buy. Capitalism and culture rent rooms in the same flat and they get along just fine, sharing ideas, an interdisciplinary relationship. The low income renters downstairs can't stand the noise, yet we all tune in. We acknowledge that the villain of the story is not always a villainous, but rather embodies the intriguing or a desire or a question demanding an answer. There's something about being in a an interracial American relationship that is complicated by the fetishism, right? That you're that you also talk in the book about your brother being in a in a marriage, interracial marriage, and his biracial children. If this is part of the conversation that you have as a larger family, and if this is something that you think is part of your daughter and her and her cousins kind of sense of identity. I think my brother and, and his partner and their kids, they've, they've also, I think, I carved out their little space and, and they're happy in it. And their kids are old now, you know, or not old, but, the, you know, like one of them is about to finish high school. Another one is about to start high school. And so they can have conversations on a really deep level about some of the issues that might pop up from just being biracial or black in, in the United States and they live in the South. And so they've done a really, I think, great job of raising the family and creating their little protective cocoon, but also at the same time, just realizing that the country around might not always be as welcoming and their kids are really perceptive and, and they get it and they can think about this stuff at a really deep level. I'm, I'm, I'm really amazed by when I talk to them and just get their insights into things. I also will say that I love that they exist because it creates this family. I think there is these kind of multi-universe, multi-universes at once or living multidimensionally someone with, who has like white heritage and black heritage in America, it's cool to find other people like that and to find a crew who like understands your your post. You can see it immediately just because our, our kids look alike, you know, to some degree, but, they, but they, it's like this immediate family that I know that my daughter has, right? I'm grateful for that. But the road that they've navigated, my, my brother and sister-in-law, to, to getting where they are to that protective cocoon, I know has sometimes fraught because that's just like life to begin with. And then you add in these other factors and it's, it's intense and they've lived everywhere. You know, they, they lived in the Bay Area, they lived in East Coast and now they live in the South. And so they've just, I don't know, they navigate it well, but it's like been real too, you know? And so I know that we've got some challenges and good times across the horizon over these next next years as, as our daughter grows up. It's interesting because I've been thinking one of the things that people want to point to as a negative in a mixed race family is the fact that my children who are biracial, they do not share a racial identity with either of their parents. You know, I'm not biracial. Their father's not biracial. Neither of us. I grew up with two white parents. He grew up with two black parents. We don't we don't have an experience that mirrors their experience. And I feel like that is something that people can try to point to as a potential problem that you don't have that in common. But I've been lately thinking of it as a real asset because the fact of the matter is that our children 
always have a different experience of the world than us. And they have different parents than we had. And they have a different identity that they're trying to form on their own. But if you exist in a homogenous family, you are maybe more likely to be fooled into believing that you can safely project more than you should. I don't know. I'm starting to think that there's maybe there's maybe a real advantage and power in knowing very clearly that they are having an experience that you've never had. And so you need to let them teach you what that is as opposed to telling them what it is. So I feel like we're fortunate in that way, that that's clear. I think you're very fortunate. And I think experience of being able to grow up if your heritage is American, you're American, you know, you can't get away from it like forever. But to grow up outside of the weight of American history for some time probably allows for a development that might bring other people down emotionally at a younger age. The way I think about it is to give them a chance to grow up where American racism doesn't exist and they will eventually encounter it and meet it. But I'm hoping that at the point in which they do, they'll have so fully formed their idea of the world that it'll just it'll seem like what it is, which is just a sickness. It won't seem like anything natural. It'll seem utterly unnatural and that it's something that they can then just refuse (laughs) to assimilate. That's my hope. You can't get away from the world, right? And the world's both awesome and terrible all at once. As you know, any marginalized American, you can you're like carrying shame about the violence that's being projected against you emotionally or sometimes physically. Though, as a kid, if you're not from the states or you're from the states but you're living there and you come back, it's not so much that you can get away from like just the way that we interact with people here. But I think the freedom would be for someone to maybe say something that's rude or awful, or you see them do something, and you recognize that that's their problem, and maybe you need to get out of the way of that problem, but it's not shame that you're carrying. And I think that is the difference. That's amazing. Because to be free, even though you can't run away from it ever, but to be freed even momentarily from the weight of American just sadness (laughs) can actually maybe create the bridge someone who can have a very positive life. It's rad. I left this conversation with Andre turning over in my head this weight, the weight of sadness, of violence, of shame, the weight of America. And listening to him describe the largely successful efforts of he and his brother and their children and wives to carve out bubbles of emotional safety, where certain painful realities could be engaged on one's own terms and not as an unprovoked attack on the psyche, I realized that I had done something similar, only my bubble stretched across an entire country not my own. Just as he did not often divert from his well-trodden, pre-approved routes through the city where he lived, I too kept to Italy, having not once returned to the United States even to visit in nearly three years. My bubble, of course, being much larger, didn't feel so confining. It was an expansive habitat where the barriers remained always far from sight and not a tight circle of metal bars. But, big and comfortable as it is, it remained, it could be argued, a cage. My hope, of course, lives in the possibility of my children escaping this fate altogether. A hope of them creating a sense of themselves and the world that doesn't demand any protective barrier be installed. and. 
I walk away from this conversation not only hoping that that can indeed be their truth, but wondering for the first time if it could ever possibly be ours. This episode of Pan Parenting was recorded weeks before the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department, the video evidence of which quickly inspired a global protest movement, provoking many white Americans to meaningfully consider, in many cases for the first time, the role of race in their own lives. Andre and I did not discuss this massive uprising as it did not yet exist, but the sudden increased interest and awareness from my fellow white Americans to the scourge of anti-black violence while encouraging has not altered my views of the country nor my horror at the fundamentally violent oppressive nature of white identity in American culture. Had the current wave of Black Lives Matter movement been crashing down when we spoke, I'm sure we would have discussed what this political shift might mean for our children and for our parenting. For my part, however, this shift seems to represent the smallest of concessions to help bandage the foundational wound that smothers in one way or another every breath of the failing American experiment. In the next episode of Pam Parenting, I will be leaving America to talk to Leah James, a psychologist living in South America and legally barred from entering with her family, her husband's homeland or her own. We'll discuss our own experiences of whiteness, navigating citizen estrangement, and envisioning an Americanness for our children to embrace. To close our time together, I invite the voices of other parents, parents who, in the early weeks of the pandemic lockdown, experienced the sudden restructuring of family life that has forced so many of us to reconsider our needs and expectations, prompting us to confront certain fears, fears which felt wholly new, but which, of course, were largely the accelerated sprouting of something dormant. I thank these parents for sharing through these dispatches the briefest of glimpses into what these foreign moments have meant for their parenting. This is Jeannie, day 37, Oakland, California. He is down the stairs twice in the hour after bedtime, first because a fan is keeping him awake, then because his thumb hurts. Then he is back yet again, his door the offender this time. I want to be patient with his anxiety, his rare insomnia, but the truth is I am stingy with these moments when, if all goes to plan, I could be alone with my many thoughts. My name's Ruth. I'm in the UK, not far from Manchester. Um, uh, We're on day 48 and I have a three-year-old daughter and I'm 30 weeks pregnant. We're currently staying with my parents in the UK because we came here just before the lockdown in Italy um, and then subsequently in the UK. So my main thoughts at the moment are when can we get back to Italy? Where will I have the baby? And what kind of birth um, and help might be available to me? Today my six-year-old kindergartner admitted to my wife that he's lonely. I get to go on walks with friends at a social distance he doesn't get to see his friends that sucks for him it sucks he has to spend nothing but time with me and his two younger brothers i'm not sure what to do 
but I gotta try to help. This is Lynn, day 40, Iowa City, Iowa. I hadn't been a fan of my backyard, a north-facing slope where grass has a tenuous hold. But lately, I've noticed how it sustains the house finch, eastern phoebe, prairie trillium, bloodroot. My children, too, have more going on the closer I look. The nine-year-old with fat baby cheeks, but increasingly long skinny legs like Christopher Robin. The nine-year-old whose attempts to climb anything in the house are now balanced by moments of a quiet, grown-up energy. Everything in my reduced world is repaying a deeper attention. <laughs> no! But what's the own No, parents, parents. Parents or own Thank you for listening to the first episode of Pan Parenting. I'll be back in two weeks with Leah James. Click the links in the show notes to learn more about Jeannie, Lynn, and Nick, and to purchase Andre Perry's book, Some of Us Are Very Hungry Now, from Asa Wan Books, an independent Black-owned bookshop in Los Angeles. To see photos of my guests' lockdown lives, follow the show on Instagram, at panparenting. Have you contemplated the racialized experience of your pregnancy? Has violence, physical or psychic ever exploded your protective bubble? If you have thoughts on this episode or want to share your own 30-second dispatch, email a voice memo to info at panparenting.com. To join me on this year-long journey towards fearlessness, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please take some time to rate and review the show, which helps others find it. Thank you to everyone who has lent their ears. Your act of witness keeps this quest alive. One can it be that they grow up and leave.